Hi, and welcome back to House Wine. Um, I'm really looking forward to diving into the next part of the Loire Valley. And I've spent the last few episodes, <laughs> the last couple episodes, talking about events in uh, news and events in wine that are pretty pressing and pretty dramatic, fires in Napa and the shocking and monumental revelation of uh, widespread sexual misconduct in the Court of Master Sommelier's Americas. Um, but this couple weeks have been relatively undramatic in wine and a little more dramatic in my real, or wine is my real life, but in my life life, which is why I was unable to post an episode last week. I had to get a root canal um, and the medication they had me on made me very uh like drowsy and uh woozy and uh I was taking the streetcar home from work and I don't really know what happened exactly but I I think I just kind of forgot to step out of the streetcar um I kind of just like tumbled out of the doors and ended up uh dislocating my shoulder so to add injury to tooth infection, I guess. <laughs> was, it was uh, not, it wasn't ideal. No, it wasn't ideal. So I was having a little bit of trouble working on the computer and um, apparently some trouble just with life in general. But I'm good now. Uh, I'm no longer on pain medication that makes me woozy. I can record a podcast. And I would also just like to thank everyone who's been listening this whole time. Um, or the, for the last five episodes, rather, I think I am making strides in my recording setup and strides in how to use a microphone, because uh, I'm a sommelier, not a microphone person, um, and just how to edit. So I, I really feel like things are progressing along nicely, and I'm really looking forward to sharing the next uh, few episodes with you. Uh, so nothing expressly happened in the wine community uh, this week, but there were just like a few like noteworthy little like news snippets. And the biggest ones uh, for those in the know or those who even care, um, <laughs> really, because uh, these are, it's pretty niche, but Washington State um, in the northwest uh, of the of America announced that they have two new AVAs. Um, and remember from the NAP episode, those are American viticulture areas. And it is, uh, the new ones are called Royal Slope and Candy Mountain. So hyper specific news, but that's all I got. Um, and I love these names that they come up with for some of the, like Candy Mountain. I'm going to remember that forever. Like it's, it's like a, old western song up on candy mountain i just yeah i think i think that's fantastic i'm glad that they're that they're naming them fun things and not just after old dead white people who knows maybe candy is an old dead white guy Time will tell. I'll have to do some studying. But it's good that nothing really happened because it's going to take us right into the meat of this episode uh, without having to hear me go on too much about how sad wildfires are, wildfires are or um, about the politics of wine. We can really dive in and get to the meat. And this is a very 
meaty episode. This is Anjou Sommer. Uh, and Anjou Sommer is in the Loire Valley. If you're looking at the Loire Valley from west to east, which was what exactly what we're doing, kind of like we're reading a book, we're reading it from left to right. Anjou Sommer is the second stop after the Pays Nantes, which we covered last time. So normally in the podcast so far, this is where I tell you uh, what I'm drinking, but I'm still on antibiotics. So I have a nice glass of ginger ale here with me. Um, and it's where I cite my sources and it's where I talk about history. And I'm not going to really cite my sources this time because they're basically all exactly the same as they were in the last episode. I'll put them in the show notes. And I covered a brief history of the Loire also last episode. So I'm not going to kind of skim over history. Some of these sub AOPs have deeper history. And of course, we'll cover that uh, when we circle back. But the Loire is like a really peaceful and serene place for the most part. Like I said, it was mostly just like a vacation spot for rich people. So there wasn't like a lot of drama that happened there. It's pretty like the history is, of course, it has a lot of history. It's the old world, it's France, but comparatively, it's it's pretty benign. So not that um, this isn't to disparage the pain on Tay, which we covered last week, like I said, and not that the pain on Tay isn't complex or interesting, but Anjou is when we really start seeing like the meat of the Loire Valley. I've already said this, but it's like, it's a meaty area. And what I mean is basically, this is where we start getting a cross-section of a bunch of tiny AOPs that, although they're all clumped together and neighbors are all making completely different wines in completely different styles, really not like one another at all. Uh, for example, you may have an AOP making sweet white wines, like the AOP of Coteau de Lobance, neighboring the AOP of Sommer, which only makes dry red wines. The trick of the Loire Valley as we move along really isn't identifying every single tiny little AOP and what they do, but identifying the style of wines that you like to drink and then seeking them out in one of these niche AOPs. And doing some exploring, that's really what I think the wines of the Loire Valley are all about. They're about exploring because there really is something for everyone. I mean it, like there's something for everyone in the Loire Valley. If you like big, bold reds, you can find that. If you like clean, lean, mineral-driven whites, you can find that. Now we get to move on to geography, my second favorite thing to do right after uh, right after history. Much like the Pénante, the Loire River cuts this region and divides it into a north bank and a south bank of the river. And I don't talk about that too much last episode, but it's more relevant when we're talking about Anjou. And I like to drop the Sommer in Anjou Sommer sometimes uh, because it's just kind of a lot to keep saying. <laughs> Moving on, uh, this is important because of the rivers, uh, rather the tributaries that feed into the Loire from the north and the south. So you can kind of visualize if you have this thin line in the middle and that line is the Loire Valley, and then you kind of in your mind, you know, draw a line going into it from the north and like two lines com- going into it from the south, and you can kind of like <clears throat> begin to visually map where these AOPs are. From the south, you have the Léon River, which feeds into the Loire, and this is important as there is an AOP named after this, and it's one of those rivers uh, that you find in the world that creates the conditions that are really favorable for noble rot, and we've talked about it before if you have listened to some of the other episodes, but it makes, it's one of those uh it's the mold that makes some of the greatest sweet wines of the world, and I'll elaborate when we get there. And on the north 
side of the river or the north side of the Loire River, you have the Sarth River, and that's another tributary. Now, this gets a little confusing as we are in the land of rivers here. There is a river that feeds into the Sarth River, so you get this kind of like this little square. It's like you got the Loire, you have the Sarth going into it, and then you have this other river going into the Sarth, so it makes like this little sort of square area that's just surrounded by rivers. And the river that's important that feeds into the Sarth is called, wait for it, the Loire. So stay with me here. The Loire River, the L-O-I-R-E River, is the main river valley that we're talking about, the one that goes, you know, through the Pays Nantes, through anjou Sommer, through Touraine, through the Central Vineyards. It's, it's the region. And then we have this other river, and that's also called the Loire that feeds into the Sarth. But this river is spelled differently. It's spelled L-O-I-R, drop the E. Very annoying. Very, very annoying. I can only imagine that this river was named hundreds of years ago with the expressed intent of stumping burgeoning sommeliers and wine lovers hundreds of years in the future. Like, there were a bunch of bowl-cut monks sitting around a wheel of cheese and drinking Chenin Blanc and being like... You know what will really drive those 21st century sommeliers crazy? Double Loire. That's, that's just, that's how I see it. It's, it's gotta be, that's the way it's gotta be. The reason that this region is called Anjou Sommer in the wine world is because the two largest AOPs in the region are called Anjou and Sommer, respectively. And these are the regions where they are making almost every kind of wine that you can possibly make. They're making red wines in both these places, mostly out of Gamay and Cabernet Franc. They're also making white wine in both of these places, mostly out of Chenin Blanc. And there are some really delicious Chenins coming out of here at really affordable price points. Also, for lovers of natural wine, this is where you get a lot more of that sort of affordable uh, natural wine style coming out of the Loire Valley because... They're these big AOPs. The rules are a little bit looser than they are in some of the tighter, smaller, stricter AOPs, so they're allowed to do a little bit more experimentation. Tangential side note, I have a very hard time narrowing in on natural wine, and throughout my career, this has been uh, pretty polarizing for me. There are some wines that are natural that I love, and there are some wines that are natural that I don't. Uh, there's no real categorical definition of what makes a natural wine natural. I think most uh, consumers, if I, if I can like use that term and not sound pretentious, base it on taste. If they can taste something yeasty or something bready, um, not bread like to eat bread, I'm, I'm talking about Brett, B-R-E-T-T, um, which is sort of the colloquial term for Brettanomyces, which is actually a bacterial infection uh, that infects uh, certain wines and certain beers. Some beer makers will inoculate their beer with Brettanomyces um, because it gives a a desired taste. And the taste of Brettanomyces, how shall I say this nicely? kind of just tastes um, a little bit like poo. <laughs> just like, it's a little poopy. 
It's um, the the kind way the kind way that sommeliers like to say it is barnyard, but what they're really saying is like manure-y. And sometimes uh, wines that have a little bit of brett um, sort of go through like a refermentation. So sometimes it's like you get this red wine that's like really funky uh, and almost a little bit like effervescent. It almost tastes like it has like this little prick on the tongue. Like there could be some. CO2 there or some carbon dioxide there. So you, you get like this prick. Uh, some people say that they taste um, like really overexposed floral notes when they taste Brett, like uh, like really like intense violet. Uh, that to me sounds delicious. That's not really what I get. I get more of the poo um, when I taste Brett. But um, some people also describe it uh, as a little bit like Band-Aids. Some people taste like like wet band-aid, which I've never really gotten, but sounds really gross. All those things said, people really, really like the taste of Britannomyces. When I say it tastes like barnyard, that's actually like at times a desirable taste. It's a desirable taste that we look for in uh, Burgundy Pinot Noirs. It's a desirable taste that we look for in really well-made Chateau Neuf du Pop. But Brett, by definition, or all wine faults by definition are only a fault when they when they cross a line. So there's a lot of really lovely natural wines out there that have brett um and there's also some really bad natural wines out there that have brett. What I'm what I'm learning to accept or what I'm learning to understand myself is that the line is different for everybody. I'm very very sensitive to brett, so for me like the line is the bar is quite low and but for some people it's quite high. Some people really really like that taste. Um and it's just it's a yeah, it's a desirable taste in a lot of wines, but it is very, 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 very coveted in sort of the natural wine scene because it has this uh, connotation now with being the taste of natural wine. So a lot of people, when they're seeking out a natural wine, they'll look for this taste of Britannomyces, almost like a certification, almost like a stamp of approval to be like, yes, this is natural. But there are many things that can make a wine natural, and there's no hard and fast definition of what that is. A lot of people say that yeast inoculation is what makes a wine natural or not. So if a wine um, had yeast added to it, it's not natural. Um, but if it's left to ferment on its own, it is natural. And I find that to be a, just a titch problematic at times because not all wine regions, um, especially cool climate or like marginal wine regions, can do natural fermentations. Uh, in the very northernmost part of Germany, in the Nahe, they have to use inoculated yeast because it's so cold there that by the time they harvest their grapes, if they just let the yeast go and do its thing, they'd have a wine that was like 5% alcohol and they don't want that. Champagne, same thing. So there's these wine regions that's like, you know, it. it's not a hard and fast rule. Uh, a lot of people say the use of SO2 or sulfur in the wine, um, that's what makes it natural or not. And again, all wine has sulfur, all wine has sulfites. All wine ever has sulfites. It's the kind of thing where, you know, people who say that they're allergic to sulfites, and I'm not saying that it's not a thing. It could, it is a thing. It could be a thing. <laughs> there, there are sulfite allergies, but uh, sulfites exist in all wine uh, since the beginning of time ever because it's a natural byproduct of wine. So there's no such thing as a zero sulfite wine, and there's no wine pourer that can magically take out sulfites. If you see one of those advertised to on Instagram, don't buy it. It's bad. Or it's not 
yeah, it's, 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 it's false advertising. So there's that debate too. Yeast inoculation, SO2 addition. Some people uh, get really heavily focused on biodynamic winemaking, which we're going to talk about in a moment, whether that means it's natural or not. And then there's all kinds of different kinds of winemaking, all, all kinds of different kinds of wines making. Yeah, good one, Rachel. There's lots of different kinds of winemaking. Vegan winemaking, I can get into that another time about what makes a wine vegan or not. It gets weird. Chenin Blanc and Anjou Sommer lends itself particularly well to this style of winemaking. And Chenin is a grape that I've always had a little bit of trouble nailing down when explaining to people, but I think after a few years, I finally got it. And when I'm at a table describing a wine to guests, I often, or describing a Chenin to guests, I often find myself referring to it as like a Chardonnay Plus. Because it has apple and pear notes of a Chardonnay, it has the crisp, crisp, <laughs> crisp mineral finish of a Chardonnay. It has acid at times a little bit lower, but can be at times comparable to a Chardonnay when it's unoaked in style. But it just has a little bit more going on than a cool climate unoaked Chardonnay. It's earthy. Chenin Blanc is really earthy. Earthy in the way that you'd almost describe a red wine. You can have notes of leaves and mushroom. And if you start digging in, a lot of sommeliers like to say they also get a wet wool note from high-end Chenin Blanc, also sometimes referred to as lanolin. Being from a place that sees pretty cold winters, I'm definitely no stranger to the smell of new wool socks. So this has always been something that's been pretty key for me in identifying this grape, and it's something that I'm able to pick up on right away. But just to bookend the AOPs of Anjou and Sommer, they're large, and they're also pretty spread out. Along with making rosé and sparkling wines, they flank both the north and south side of the Loire River, and they basically fill in all the little gaps between all the other little smaller, more niche AOPs, and that's the reason why they make such a diverse array of wines. So let's head to the north bank of the river, where you have the AOP, which is arguably the king of Chenin Blanc. And this is really the main AOP on the North Bank, and that is Savignere. Yeah, the good one. Now, you may have heard of another AOP that makes Chenin, and that's Vouvray, uh, but that's going to be included in next episode, and we'll talk about the differences between the two then. Savignere is always dry, and it's always 100% Chenin Blanc. There might be like one or two that are like lightly off dry, um, but the rule of the AOP is that they're always dry. And that's the fact, and that's really what you need to know about Sauvignon. Sauvignon. <laughs> it's also the home of Nicolas Jolie. Remember we talked a little bit about biodynamic winemaking the last time, and I said we were going to get a little bit more into it? Well, here we go. This is a little more. Nicolas Jolie is arguably the godfather of biodynamic winemaking. He didn't invent it. That was the Austrian guy. Rudolf Steiner, who is arguably one of the most famous practitioners of esotericism, and I did have to look up exactly what that is, but it's essentially Judeo-Christian mysticism. It kind of pertains to things also like tarot reading and astrology, uh, and he started implementing these ideas into historical farming practices and education right after the First World War in Austria. 
He considered himself to be a clairvoyant. This is uh, Rudolf Steiner we're talking about, not Nicolas Jolie. We'll get into Nicolas Jolie in a minute. But Rudolf Steiner considered himself to be a clairvoyant and believed that he could see what he called this spiritual geometry that interlocked and held the universe together. It's pretty deep stuff. Uh, He was a little out there, and uh, so are most of the people who follow biodynamic winemaking. Uh, Re-Nicolas Jolie. Uh, He left France in his youth. This is Jolie we're talking about now. Left France in his youth to be uh, a Wall Street banker. He studied at Columbia University in New York uh, and went on to be an investment banker in London in the late 70s. And then he returned to his family's farm in the Loire Valley, specifically to his family home in Savignere, and took over his family estate, uh, which at the time, like many wineries in the 70s, was sort of trying to implement the newest equipment to get the most yields uh, and get the most wine they could out of the grapes they had. And after reading Rudolf Steiner's book and about biodynamics, uh, Nicolas Jolie quickly became an early adapter and a convert in the late 1970s. By 1984, all of his wines were being produced this way. He's gone on to write many books of his own on the subject of biodynamics, and many winemakers around the world really credit him with their conversion to biodynamic wine practices. I feel like I've talked about it just like a little bit before, but biodynamic wine practices are crazy. There's all these preparations that they do and all of these different things that they do. I think the most famous one is they collect cow horns and fill them with silica crystals and then bury them in the earth. And then when the moon is at a certain position uh, at a certain time of year, they unearth the crystals and they uh, mix them with water and they sort of make this preparation and then they use that to spray the vines down and basically make like a natural insecticide out of it or something to that effect it's all it's all very complicated and all has like this like it's mysticism basically it's all about like mystic energy and the energy of the planets and the energy of the stars it's um it's witchy it's it's very cool right now i'm it is cool it's not just cool right now it is cool but it's uh yeah it's it's a thing uh, so arguably, back, back to, back to Nicolas Jolie, arguably the most famous wine that Nicolas Jolie makes is the Cuvée Coulée de Serrant. And I've had this wine many times and it is very delicious. Uh, it can be a little pricey. It comes in, I think, in my market around $60 Canadian. Um, and the last time I had this was a very, it was a very fond memory. My, uh, two of my best friends eloped and, uh, we had a very small wedding dinner of four and I brought, um, uh, some of my nicer wines and we, we drank the, um, I think it was the 2000 and, oh, I want to say 16 vintage. I think it was the 2016 vintage. Anyway, so a young vintage for, uh, for Coulee de Serrant, but oh man, it was delicious. Coulee de Serrant is an AOP in its own right. So I think this is the first time we're actually going to use the word monopole on this podcast. And monopole is just the French word for, maybe you piece this together already, monopoly. Uh, and this means that the only winemaker that makes wine in the whole AOP of Coulee de Serrant is Nicolas Jolie. He owns the whole thing, hence monopoly. And there are quite a few of these monopolies around France, or monopoles, as they're um, more known as, because it's France and they speak French. And we're absolutely going to talk about them more when I muster the courage to do an episode on Burgundy. Uh, 
brief side note, Burgundy is insane. And even though I spent years studying it, um, making an episode about it scares the hell out of me. So all to say, if you see a bottle of Coulee de Serrant, grab it. It's really, really good. You can age it. Absolutely. I'd say 10 plus years. Uh, you can drink it upon purchase. That's good too. I'm all about drinking and enjoying wine because that's what wine is there for. It's there to be drank and enjoyed. And if you let it go too long, then you miss it. Uh, so don't age your wine too long or don't, don't sit on wine just because you think it's going to get better. Drink it. I'll post a little link in the show notes uh, of a video about Nicolas Jolie. It's actually a Vice video, but it's really good. It's about 15 minutes and it just like shows him in the vineyard uh, talking about mysticism and the planets and making this cow horn preparation. And uh, you kind of get to see like what biodynamics is all about and what Nicolas Jolie is all about. Uh, so there is another small AOP nestled within Savignard, and that is the Roche aux Wines AOP. The Rock of the Monks. This is not a monopole, but it's kind of almost a monopole. There's only a few producers that make wine here. It's a really tiny little AOP, one of the smallest in France. And the main, uh, the main people making wine here is the Domaine Omoines. It's a female-led team of winemakers making really exceptional Chenin Blanc, and these wines are really good, like really, really good. I've had the privilege of uh, having had the 1999 three separate times uh, from this shot, uh, from this domain. Each time was like a very distinct and great memory, not because of even where I was or who I was drinking it with, just because the wine was like that good. So they're really delicious. It's really delicious. It's a mother and daughter team running the winery. And that's always awesome because I love to support other women in the wine industry. Um, those ones can run up a little bit more expensive. But again, if you see a bottle, just get it. The last thing you need to know about Savonier, and maybe I should just, like I said, do a deep dive on this region a little bit later because there's so much more, even though it's such a small region. Um, but these are blue schist soils and uh, also some volcanic soils too. And I don't love talking about soil on this podcast because, I mean, I will talk about it more probably in later when I do like deep dive episodes, but people get really caught up on soils and yes, they're important, but are they important? Not really as important to know as the wines themselves. But these soils aren't super common. You don't see volcanic soil everywhere. Um, and you don't really see blue schist everywhere either, unless you're in Germany. Uh, so it's kind of this like outcrop of interesting soil that just makes the wines really deep and rich and complex. And that word that we love to use, that mineral word, they're just very mineral-driven wines, and they're really, really tasty. Now, to the east of Savignier, you have an AOP that straddles both sides of the Loire River. Essentially, it is cut in two by the Loire. And this is where we're going to start talking about the red wines of the Loire Valley for the first time, specifically Cabernet Franc. I once mentored somebody who would tease me all the time uh, because every time we'd go to a region uh, and we were going over it, I would exclaim that, oh, this is one of my favorite wines. And she'd be like, every wine is your favorite wine, Rachel. And I was like, yeah, that's true. But Cabernet Franc from the Loire Valley really is one of my favorite wines. So the next segment may be a little bit biased. Uh, Cabernet Franc, I feel, doesn't really get the love that it deserves. It's a very old grape. It's a grape that they believe uh, originated in the Loire Valley, but can also be found in Bordeaux. And it has a long history of being grown all around the world. It comes in a range of styles from light and fruity to dark and juicy when it's grown somewhere hot like California. It gets really like deep and inky, but it mostly tastes of red fruits, 
like raspberries and cranberries. And it has a distinct, what people in the wine world like to call green note, which can come out sometimes as like the flavor of kind of like tobacco leaf or green bell pepper. And this grape also parented some of the most famous grapes in the world. It's one part of both Cabernet Sauvignon, and it's also one of the parent grapes of Merlot and Carmenier. New grapes really come about by what they call crossings. That's when you have two existing grapes and you basically smush them together. This is me smushing them together. <laughs> smush them together and uh, and see uh, what comes out. And that's where you get a parent grape. So Cabernet Franc really is like the parent grape of these like world-renowned famous grapes. It's it's the dad of Cabernet Sauvignon. And it really is attributed to bringing these grapes their peppery and savory aromas, which to me is pretty cool stuff. So Saumur Champigny in the Loire Valley is one of the places that this little grape uh, calls home. And it's often bottled on its own. It can be blended just like a tiny bit. Sometimes they include like 10% of something else, but usually it's bottled on its own. The wines here are pretty light and they have a real, like a real peppery freshness. They're grown on a soil that uh, the locals call Truffaut. And it's essentially a chalky limestone. You can just call it chalky limestone. But in France, they call it Tufo. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week, too, when we head over to Terrain, because it's also the soil type in Vouvray and Chinon, which are actually just really a stone's throw away from this AOP, even though they are technically in another region, which is classic wine geography. Nothing is simple. Everything is complicated. Are there a ton of what I would say are super noteworthy producers here in Somer Chambigny? I mean, there are lots of producers for sure, and they're all making really great wine. Uh, I think the one that I drink the most is probably Chateau Les uh, Chantres, Chantres, Chantres. <laughs> I should know how to spell that because I've had, or say that because I've had this wine a lot. It's uh, usually available at the LCBO, which is the wine monopoly store run by the government of Ontario for those uh, of you who are elsewhere listening. And it really delivers. It's around $25 and it tastes like great Cabernet Franc. So, is there a revolutionary winemaker of the elk of Nicolas Jolie in Somer Champigny? Um, maybe. I don't know them, if there is yet. And I tried to do some research and look into it for this episode, but I couldn't really find, like, like this is the person, this is the best producer, they're amazing, this is the one you have to have. It's really just um, a region where they're making really, really solid, pretty affordable Cabernet Franc. If you do find the, like you know, creme de la creme, the guy who's just like pumping out the best summer Champigny and you want to, <laughs> you want to let me know, please reach out, email me, contact me on Instagram. I really want to know who that person is because I couldn't find them. It all seems to be sort of like very, um, I, I hate using this term, but like mid-level, like just people who are just, you know, making a really great $25 Cabernet Franc. That's kind of that's kind of what they're doing in Somer Champigny. And that really brings us now to the South Bank, our final stop on our tour of Anjou Somer, uh, where the Léon River meets and flows into the Loire. Right where the two rivers meet is an AOP called Coteau de Léon, literally meaning on the slopes of the Léon River. And this is sweet wine country. These wines are 100% Chenin Blanc, I skipped around there for a bit. I went from white wine back to red wine. Now I'm at white wine again. But these are sweet wines. This is a sweet wine AOP. So if you happen to listen to the Alsace episode, then you remember me talking about noble rot, that coveted mold that has the potential to make white grapes excellent. 
extra sweet and delicious. And um, it basically, if it hits a red wine grape, it makes it garbage because I don't know, it just doesn't doesn't do well with red. It make, makes delicious white wine grapes garbage red wine grapes. So this mold dehydrates the grape and makes the juice super concentrated and adds additional flavors. Um, most people attribute it to sort of like a marmalade or a saffron or kind of like a mushroomy taste, but in a good way. So remember the sweet wines of Alsace that clocked in sometimes at 306 grams of residual sugar? Well, the wines of Coteau de Leon only start at 34 grams of residual sugar. So this is quite a bit less sweet. It's over 250 grams less sweet. But don't get me wrong, it is still sweet. And if you have, uh, and you also have to remember that this is where it starts. The minimum amount is 34 grams of residual sugar. So they can absolutely be sweeter, and many of them are. But are they as sweet as the sweet wines of Alsace? No. Like in Alsace, they'll go into the vineyards that have been affected by noble rot, and they will pick individual grapes from the vine to make the best wine possible. There are seven named villages in Coteau de Leon, and they are allowed to put their name on the label of the wine. Again, this is the law, those freaky French wine laws. There's just one that is very important, and that is the village of Chaume. Chaume has been designated quote-unquote premier crew, which basically just means that out of all the seven villages, it's the best. So if you're going to indulge your sweet tooth and you're going to buy a bottle of Botrytis, Botrytis cinera being the uh, technical term for noble rot, affected Chenin Blanc from Coteau de Leon, then you might want to look for the words Chaume premier crew on the bottle um, because that's the good stuff. That's the stuff you want to drink. I've had it and it is really delicious. I highly recommend. But make sure that you are eating something really rich, some foie gras or something like very decadent. It needs rich food, as is the way with most sweet wines, in my humble opinion. Or you can also just have it for dessert. I mean, that works too. On the other side of the Leon River, there are two sibling AOPs to Coteau de Leon. There's a big brother and there's a little brother. This is kind of how I've always remembered it myself. And they make the exact same style of wine minimum 34 grams residual sugar. And the big brother is Court de Chaume, the only sweet wine in the Loire Valley that has been given the designation Grand Cru. Grand Cru by definition is better than Premier Cru. Even though Premier means first, I know this is a lot, the French, they love to do this kind of thing. I haven't been shady towards Italian wine all yet today, but just wait until we cover some of Italy's wine laws. It, it gets worse. It gets crazier. And then there's German... Germany is probably actually the worst, and Austria is also pretty bad, too. But <laughs> Grand Cru in Court de Chaume is a new thing. It only started uh, heralding back to, to what we're actually talking about. Uh, it's a new thing, and it only started in 2010. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the next couple of years they started adding more categories to this AOP. Uh, the most famous sweet wine here is arguably from Domaine de Beaumard. Uh, this is really the benchmark for sweet wines in the Loire Valley, and I'll link up to their website, but be warned, these guys are old school, and their website is too. I don't even really think it translates into English, frankly. Um, it basically just directs you to a Facebook page with just as little information. Because they're focused on the wine, and they make the probably some of the best sweet wines in the world, they're considered to, to be up there with the Great German, the Great Alsatian. Domaine de Beaumard is really where it's at for sweet wine. And again, it's Grand Cru. It's Grand Cru better than Premier Cru. 
And then the little baby brother is Bonazo AOP. Not as prestigious as the other two. There's no Grand Cruise. There's no Premier Cruise here. Just sweet Chenin Blancs. And this is where more of the value comes in. If you don't want to spend a ton of money, but you're interested in trying a sweet Chenin Blanc, then see if you can get your hands on a wine from Bonazo. If you're hosting like a dinner party, far-flung post-COVID world dinner party, and you want to serve something with dessert, then this is a great, more cost-effective option uh, than a bottle of Domaine de Beaumard, because that can cost you around $80 to $100. I'll preface the end of this episode by saying that there are a total of 18 distinct AOPs in the Anjou summer region. If I went over all of them, uh, I probably wouldn't have any listeners left because it would be the driest and boringest podcast of all time. I mean, we're already dealing with some really dense material here, and uh, if my long-winded explanation about Savignier and Nicolas Jolie wasn't um, enough, then you know the details of Coulet de Sorant and Roche au Moyen is enough. Um, but for the nerds, here are the AOPs that I didn't go into detail about. You have Anjou Village Brissac, Anjou Coteau de la Loire AOP, Anjou Village AOP, Cabernet d'Anjou AOP. Don't be fooled by this one. They do grow Cabernet Sauvignon here, but they only make rosé in that AOP. There is also Coteau de l'Aubance AOP, uh, Coteau de Sommer AOP, Haute Pitou AOP, where they are actually making Sauvignon Blanc, one of the first occurrences of Sauvignon Blanc that we, uh, we've we talked about in the Loire Valley. There actually was one in the last episode, now that I think about it. Um, they make it in the Fief Vendéens. There's one tiny little subregion, the Fief Vendéens, where they do make Sauvignon Blanc. I digress. And then there is the Rosé d'Anjou AOP. See, it's too much. It's too much. And I know I told you about the LOIR river and then never really bounce back to it, but I definitely will bounce back to it next episode. Because remember, this is a four-part series and we're going to be revisiting some of these as we go along into Touraine. Touraine being our next episode. The home of some of the great and famous wine regions like Vouvray and my favorite, my favorite, favorite, Chino. And talking more about the ever-maddening LOIR River. And this is where I sign off. And I tell you that House Wine is an independent podcast. It is written, produced, and narrated by me, Rachel, broadcasting from a pillow fort that I built in my bedroom. Literally, I'm sitting in it right now. Uh, so give it a like, give it a comment if you enjoy, if you learned something today, if you're going to pick up a bottle of Chenin Blanc. Uh, it all goes a really long way. And the best thing you can do is recommend it to another friend who loves wine. That's the thing that helps the most. Uh, If you want to ever request an episode or send in a correction, you can email the podcast at housewinepodcast at gmail.com. The art is done by Kelly Lauren, a local Toronto artist and illustrator. I'm a huge fan of her work, and you should check her out on Instagram at K-L-Y-L-A-U-R-E-N. Uh, And I'm on Instagram, too. If you want to um, connect with me that way, you absolutely can and see what I'm drinking these days. It has been uh, nothing these days because I'm still on antibiotics. But later this week, I will post some delicious wine that I drank. And I am at Rachel Picard. That is Rachel, A-E-L, and Picard like the captain. Until we meet again, I hope you drink something delicious. Maybe now that it's fall, you should try a delicious Cabernet Franc from Sommer Champigny. Have a great week.